picture of Israel enshrouded in darkness, suffering under the mighty hand of God's judgment in light of her covenant unfaithfulness, having chose, chosen her own way rather than God's way. A darkness that, to use the, the words of Isaiah, uh, has left her in anguish as the Assyrian Empire threatens to overcome her. But God promises, as we see in this passage, not to leave his people there. He promises that the darkness will not have the final word. That, that's what the first three verses of Isaiah 9 declare to us. It says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. That God promises that, that a light will dawn, that he will bring about the salvation of his people. And he promises that he will accomplish this great work of salvation in the most unlikely of ways. Verse four tells us, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. That God promises to, to rescue his people much in the same way that he rescued them on the day of Midian. Now you might ask, what in the world does that mean? Well, when the Israelites took over the land of Canaan, when you read about that in the Old Testament, their rebellion against God led to them being overcome by the pagan nations that surrounded them, including the Midianites. Israel was completely powerless to save herself, as are we. And as the story goes, God raised up Gideon to do battle against these pagan armies. Gideon, Gideon managed to gather an army of roughly 32,000 men for himself, but God determined in his wisdom that that was too big an army. And so Gideon whittled it down to 10,000 men, and God said, still too many. 10,000 was eventually reduced to a meager 300, which pleased the Lord. And with nothing more than trumpets, empty jars, and torches, we're told that Gideon's army of 300 defeated their enemies by God's grace. That God chose to manifest his power through weakness so that no one would question whether it was God or man who brought about the victory so that God would get the glory. Isaiah says here in chapter nine, God's gonna do something that, that's a lot like what happened on the day of Midian. In Gideon's day, God's gonna show himself victory, uh, victorious in apparent defeat. He's gonna show himself strong through weakness. God's gonna save the world <laughs> through the birth of a child. Verse six, very famous verse. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is one of the many prophecies of the Old Testament that points to the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, the birth of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, wonderful counselor, he's declared to be. That word wonderful in most of, of our Bibles, most of the translations means to communicate something that it, it fails to communicate in those translations, namely that Jesus is a wonder, a miraculous display of the, the very wisdom of God, God turning the wisdom of the world upside down on its head, just like in Gideon's day. My guess would be that if you had never heard the gospel before, if I were to ask you, what would you expect the plan to restore sinners to a holy God to look like? Would your answer be, I think God has to die. 
Probably not, right? Isaiah 9 is meant to remind us that, that God saves in a way that we never would have imagined. The Apostle Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, where he says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That crazy as it sounds, when you really sit with the truth, those tiny hands were destined to receive the nails of crucifixion. That tiny head was destined to receive a crown of thorns. From the cradle to the cross, Jesus Christ was born to die. And that's the wonder of God's wisdom in rescuing sinners. He's mighty God, Isaiah tells us, that in the body of a helpless baby, the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell bodily. That the one who, who spoke trees and rocks into being had to be taught how to work with wood and stone as a carpenter. That the one who created everything in the universe had to, had to be taught how to spell the very things that he created in the beginning. That the God of the universe had to be taught his name. Think about that. God showing himself strong in weakness. God showing himself victorious in apparent defeat because that helpless baby would go on to live the perfect sinless life that none of us could ever live, displaying the might of God in not once yielding to temptation. That helpless baby would go on to die in the place of sinners, displaying the might of God in triumphing over death itself through his very own death. He's everlasting father, Isaiah tells us, which is not to say that Jesus is to be confused with, with God the Father. It's to say that, that when we fix our eyes on the nativity, we're looking at the very one who would go on to, to secure our eternal adoption as way, wayward orphan sinners, the one who would establish our everlasting provision and protection by laying down his life for us as the good shepherd. He's prince of peace, Isaiah tells us. In the Bible, peace usually has to do with the, the ending of war, the ending of hostility. When we gaze upon that baby lying in, in a feeding trough in Bethlehem, we're meant to see the one who would break down the dividing wall of hostility between God and man, making peace by the blood of his cross, Colossians 1 tells us. That, that if God doesn't break through, we're completely without hope. We're left in the gloom and darkness of, of sin's curse. We're under the yoke of oppression, to use Isaiah's language. The, the Christmas story is this glorious rescue story of divine initiative, that you and I are simply recipients of God's grace as we come into this place this evening. That, that from the cradle to the cross, a light has shone into the darkness, the light of the world, Jesus Christ which is a declaration of two things. It's a declaration that you and I are far more sinful than we ever imagined, that, that God came to us is this unwavering declaration that we could never get to him, that we could never bridge that cosmic gap between our sinfulness and his holiness, our darkness and his marvelous light, to use the imagery of Isaiah 9. But Christmas is the celebration that we don't have to, that God's rescue mission is not based on intrinsic lovability, it's not based on moral fiber. God is not some divine elf on the shelf looking down, scrutinizing, creating naughty and nice lists. The world says that there are two lists, naughty and nice, and God loves the nice people, so be a nice person and God will love you. The gospel says something very different. It says there are no naughty and nice people, there are naughty people, and Jesus who came to save all the naughty people like you and me. Yes, we're far more sinful than we ever imagined, but the other glorious truth is that we're far more loved than we could ever possibly dream in Jesus Christ. If you come into this place and you're not a Christian, I invite you to behold the glory and grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the Savior and the King. 
There's so much to celebrate this morning. And so we want to pause for a second and rejoice in, in Jesus' redeeming work from the cradle to the cross through the partaking of the Lord's Supper. Let's celebrate the, the wonder of God's wisdom, wonderful counselor. Let's celebrate the display of divine strength in the person of Jesus Christ, mighty God. Let's celebrate the, the beauty of perfect fatherly provision in Jesus Christ, our everlasting father. Let's celebrate the peace established by the blood of his cross because he is the prince of peace. We receive communion here by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. Isaiah goes on to say in verse seven of chapter nine, of the increase of his government, Jesus's government, and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That it's not just from the cradle to the cross that a light has shown, but also from the cross to the crown that the baby in the manger that we look in on this time of year is now the king seated on the throne of heaven itself. That Jesus Christ, he's still wonderful counselor meeting our need for wisdom and guidance, rescuing us from our own foolishness by the power of the indwelling spirit. Jesus is still mighty God, meeting our need for strength and power. You come in weak this, this evening. He carries us in our moments of greatest weakness, greatest experiences of tragedy, empowering us to put sin to death and to live to him as triumphant king. Jesus is still everlasting father, meeting our need for provision and protection, supplying us with every ounce of grace that we could possibly need, guarding us from the enemy who would seek to snatch us from his very hand. Jesus is still Prince of Peace, meeting our need for rest in this restless, broken world. As the risen King, Jesus is not only willing, but able to dispense his wisdom, his power, his provision, and his peace. Going back to the names, the titles he's given in verse six. To use Isaiah's language, Jesus has the shoulders to bear such a government. And it's a weight that will never grow wearisome for him. That when he returns as wonderful counselor, as we look to the future, the eternal kingdom that he will consummate will be one in which foolishness shall be no more the fullness of wisdom shining forth from the very throne of the king himself. That when he returns as mighty God, he will powerfully cast out every one of our greatest enemies forever, establishing an eternal kingdom in which the prowling devil of hell shall be no more, nor the enticement of sin, nor the sadness of death. Hallelujah. When he returns as everlasting father, we will know the, the fullness of eternal safety and care as he establishes this eternal kingdom absent of danger with the fullness of blessing. And when he returns as prince of peace, he will wipe away every single trace of hostility, division, and restlessness, our hearts fully and finally happy in him forever. That Jesus will reign, Isaiah says, on David's throne and over his kingdom with perfect justice and righteousness forever and ever and ever and ever. That word zeal in verse seven, it means to become intensely red. A burst of emotion, like a, like a husband's jealousy for the love of his bride. It's a, it's a description of God's passion for his own glory and the eternal joy and good of his people that the same Jesus who made an appearance in a lowly manger a couple thousand years ago will come again. How do we know? Verse seven, God was zealous to send his son the first time, the light of Christ dawning on our darkness in the birth of Jesus Christ. 
And with that same zeal, God will send his son again. He will, bringing his redemptive plan to its consummate end, making everything sad untrue, as we say around here a lot, swallowing up darkness forever, the glory of Christ giving never-ending light to the eternal city of God. If you look under the chair in front of you, you should see a single candle. In just a moment, we're gonna participate in a congregational candle lighting, which as we do, consider two things. Consider this to be a visible display of Jesus's first coming, the light of Christ dawning in on our broken world, but also consider it to be a visible display of Jesus's second coming, the light of Christ returning to swallow up every ounce of darkness forever.